15. Um, it is listed there in your bulletin as being on page 537 of the Pew Bible, but I'm going to do something unusual. Every time we read the Proverbs, we need to read it in a way that's accessible. So a little bit of a translation, a little bit of a paraphrase, but just listen as I read aloud from Proverbs 14. The wisdom of the wise keeps life on track, but the foolishness of the fool lands them in the ditch. Fools mock at making amends for sin, but the wise person rejoices in forgiveness. The heart overflows with bitter, which overflows with bitterness can never really find joy. Fools build their mansions on sand, and the wise place their tents on solid ground. There is a way of life that looks attractive on the surface, but it leads to death. Worldly success appears filled with pleasure, but that pleasure fades and sadness will fill the heart. Fools will, re will reap the foolishness they have sowed. The wise will enjoy the wisdom of their ways. The fool trusts in the trustworthy, untrustworthy, and the wise trust in that which is worthy of their trust. This is the word of God. You may be seated. So we're reminded of the coming of that little child in the manger for us. So we now come before him to pray. Pray with me as I pray on behalf of us. O oh Lord, our God, you who created heaven and earth and brought us into being as well, reminded us of our call to follow you wherever that might lead. You know how fragile we are and how full of corruption our hearts often chase after. Remind us as we worship this evening of your goodness, the remarkable, miraculous, breathtaking goodness of Jesus. And by your spirit, we ask that you would help us to reflect him. Even as we seek forgiveness and find mercy, may we extend mercy to each other. We pray for our witness in this part of New England. We pray for the opportunities as we share our words and our lives with neighbors, with friends, and co-workers. That we might shine with the goodness of the gospel. Teach us to be wise. Even sometimes when it seems foolish in the eyes of the world. We pray that you would give us a spirit of humility and a spirit of courage. We pray also for the fragileness of the world we live in. We pray that you would give us hearts that seek your peace, a peace the world doesn't fully understand or grasp and seems so strange in these times of division and polarization. 
Help us to be able to talk across our differences. The differences in our marriages, in our families, our neighborhoods, and our world. We pray for the tragedies taking place around the globe that you have knit and wed us to. For the Christians who give witness in the Middle East in this time, on both sides of that border. For churches that seem lost in the midst of the crisis, that bear witness with humility to the love of Jesus. So we ask that you would watch over us now. Keep our hearts clear, clearly focused with so many distractions that surround us. May we find that joy that comes from knowing you and the life you give in Jesus. We pray in the name above all names, even Jesus. Amen. We turn this evening uh, to Proverbs. Um, Proverbs is an unusual book. Don't ever read it just straight through. I picked out a, one of the Proverbs, I hope, that will be provocative. That turns, in one sense, the ordinary wisdom of the world upside down. And so maybe... Just begin by asking the question, who's the wisest person you can think of, concretely? Maybe there's not a single person, maybe it's a collection. Patterns might emerge among a number of people you're thinking about. I suppose they're not the smartest people you ever met. IQ and wisdom don't always go together. Likely, they are those wise people advanced in years, but not necessarily. I suspect they've also gone through very difficult times, something about suffering that brings about an unusual kind of wisdom. And I suspect they may not even look like you and that those differences matter. The wisest person I ever met was a 75-year-old plain-spoken Midwesterner from a little village in southern Missouri. A farmer, retired bank president, loved the local bank in his town, owned a tomato canning factory, employed many of those neighbors of his in that little village. He considered himself, however, a simple, small-town farmer. He lost both of his sons to cancer in their 30s lost his lone surviving daughter to cancer as well. His wife had spent two years separated from the family because of tuberculosis. She had a master's degree, very accomplished. She loved being the center of attention. Yet he never showed any jealousy. He genuinely delighted in not being the center of attention. He wasn't much into politics except of the local variety that affected his neighbors and his friends. He took in families of Chinese immigrants during World War II when that was not exactly popular. 
The only time I ever heard him complain was when his beloved St. Louis Cardinals lost. His faith in Jesus was part of the ordinary clothes he wore every day. He was my wife's grandfather. His name was Porter Lucas. And is the namesake of his great, great grandson, whom we baptized. To this day, I remember what a shock it was to my system when I bumped into him. A gentle spirit, a generous soul, just a very simple presence. A powerful reminder that wisdom of his sort was in short supply in our world. Which brings us to the passage in Proverbs 14. What I'm calling the foolishness of wisdom. It's also the story about the beginning of Advent. For the Christmas story is surely foolishness in the eyes of the world. A little baby was actually God in the flesh. To those of us who've been in church a long time, it may be seen ordinary. But when you think about it, how extraordinarily foolish that seems to be. Now, Proverbs as a whole, probably the earliest part originated with Solomon, but extended well past his reign. Solomon, as you remember, was the third king of Israel. Saul was the first, David the second, and David's wife Bathsheba, even that story aside for now, Gaz's son. The son was Solomon, and Solomon is the beginning here of our book. The story of wisdom is in some ways the story of Solomon who started out very wise and ends up very foolish. Wisdom you can grow in or lose as we go across this book. The genre of this book is important. Much like the book of Ecclesiastes, it's probably written by a father for his son. How you pass on persistent character traits. Little to be gained by reading straight through. Wisdom is complex, we learn, and sometimes confusing. So Proverbs 26 says, answer the fool. And then immediately following, it says, don't answer the fool. And you want to say, well, well which is it? But of course, that's what wisdom is. It knows the difference of when to answer or not to answer. Often the key to understanding is the context, the circumstances. And there is nobody better at this than Jesus. He often knew how to speak hard words to hard-hearted people and to speak kind words to tender-hearted people. He knew whom he was speaking to and therefore just what they needed to hear. In other words, context matters. How often as parents, at least originally, initially, we treat, try to treat each of our children exactly the same way. Only that ends always in disaster. For our children are different from each other. Proverbs shows us the way God's preparing us to think and to live not according to the worldly wisdom, that common sense that surrounds us, but according to godly wisdom. 
And there is a sharp contrast that runs throughout Proverbs between worldly wisdom and divine wisdom. And it's probably most poignantly demonstrated at Christmas. Advent's a season in which we wait with expectancy, not for a warrior God who's going to trample all my enemies, but for a little baby who was born in obscurity, lived humbly, died a lonely death, and whose kingdom was eternal. It doesn't make any sense, except it's true. A quick note on this particular proverb we're looking at. There's a unique literary structure. It begins at both ends and moves towards the middle. Uh, you can look at it in your leisure later on. In some ways, looking at its structure helps us to look below the surface. The character of the genre helps us to see there's more than meets the eye. In some ways, a reflection of wisdom itself, which asks us to look below the surface to see the patterns woven deep into the created order by the God of wisdom. The proverb begins and ends by contrasting foolishness and wisdom. It moves a little bit closer to the center by addressing the moral character of wisdom and foolishness. Further in then, towards the center, the inner workings of the heart as it experiences wisdom or foolishness. And finally, at the center of the proverb, verses 11 and 12, the eternal consequences of wisdom and foolishness are laid out. Now, the wise and the fool are not the people on the right or the people on the left. It's the division that runs down the center of every human heart. There is a little bit of wisdom in all of us and a little bit of foolishness, and in some there's more of one than the other. But it grows. Both can grow, depending on how they're nurtured. So what is wisdom? Just a couple of preliminary comments. As simple as possible, it's the ability to discern the deep patterns God's instilled in the created order. The ability to discern the deep patterns that God's instill in creation. In other words, it's accepting and affirming the way reality is actually designed to work. Wisdom begins with the realization that God has made the world with certain intentional patterns and that our flourishing rests in Embracing those patterns. Wisdom, as we know at the beginning of the book of Proverbs, but throughout uh, the Proverbs, begins with a fear of the Lord. Uh, a phrase sometimes hard to understand. Essentially, if I could put it in um, populist uh, jargon, God's the center, not you or me. I mean, that's what's going on there at the beginning. That's where wisdom begins when you're out of the center and God is in the center. A second fact of wisdom. The world's not the way it's supposed to be. It's broken. And wisdom can distinguish between the goodness of the created order, which is also at the very same time 
a corrupted, created order. It's broken. Recognition of this helps us see why wisdom often is gained with suffering. Reckoning with the brokenness of the world helps us to see the world larger. Not always, as the proverb will go on to say. So the first two facts of wisdom, that the world is good because of the God who made it, and the world is not the way it's supposed to be. Wisdom helps us hold those together in tension. A third insight. Wisdom is at home in diverse circumstances. It reads context. It's a, by nature sensitive to the diversity of life that we come across. It doesn't flatten out reality as if every situation is the same. Though often that's how we want to treat reality. Marriages, for example, that assume husbands and wives always think of the same are bound to ruin. It's when we recognize that we think out of different intuitions, what uh, we commonly call emotional intelligence and relational intelligence. Some of us have a lot of them, and some of us don't have very much of them at all. Wisdom encourages the increase. A fourth, there's no mechanical means to get it. I, I wish I could just list it as a mathematical formula and say do. Now there are a lot of do's and don'ts in Proverbs, but it's reckoning with where and when to apply them. It's learning to be humble, to have a persistent curiosity about the world God has made, but more nearly, but the God who made the world that takes you out of the center. A final insight. It calls us to be humble about our memories. Our, our memories are the means by which we place ourselves in a story, the story of our lives. We all live in that story, but often that story is told in a way always in my favor or your favor. Our memories never entirely match up to the reality of the past, nor do the intuitions capture reality as God has designed it. Wisdom. Very, very briefly. What's foolishness? It's not wisdom. Stated as, as obvious as we can, right? Foolishness tries to conform the world to its own desires. The fool doesn't take brokenness seriously. It treats every circumstance the same. Thinks too highly of itself. Doesn't appreciate our ability to distort reality. So then how do you acquire wisdom? I've thought much about this because I think it's in such short supply in a time of such deep polarization and division among us. I've wrestled with this in a recent work of mine on common unity, but how we learn to talk across our differences. It takes a certain humility to deal with disagreements. Not abandoning our convictions, but neither using them as a weapon to beat those who disagree with us. 
Two clues then in terms of how we acquire wisdom that are in this proverb that lead us to Jesus. We're to have a humble confidence. A humble confidence. Those two don't normally go hand in hand. Be honest, in other words, about your own, what the Puritans used to call besetting sins. But also that you've been created with a dignity that can never be taken away. Second, find a wise person who digs deep into the wisdom of God and be a student of their character. So first, consider your besetting sins. I like that language. It's an older term, but it has to do with the persistent character traits that are part of our, um, part of our lives. You were created to reflect the God of the universe, but for reasons that remain mysterious to this day, we've gone the other direction. So how do we hold on to the reality that we are broken and we are made in the image of God with a kind of humble courage? As the proverb says, the fool sees no need to seek or ask for forgiveness. As we all know, we're surrounded by politicians of every stripe who think apologies are a fundamental sign of weakness. The wise person knows that in seeking forgiveness, there's mercy. And you can't experience mercy without forgiveness. To recognize the absolutely breathtaking love of God extended his mercy to us who are sinners, it changes us. The more you ponder his love, the more you will seek to experience his mercy. In that regard, as the Puritan Jews say, all of life is repentance. All of life is repentance because it's running to the God who is merciful. The more we repent, the more we will experience his mercy. And so what are the persistent patterns that get you in trouble? and for which you often need to ask forgiveness. Maybe to your spouse, maybe to your children, maybe to your neighbors, maybe, and most of all, to God. Are you a people pleaser? Are you a bull in a china shop? Do you elevate yourself above others because you're insecure yourself? Do you struggle with reconciliation because you don't really want to admit you're ever wrong? What are the struggles you have? Then you have them, these persistent character traits that will drive you either away from God or towards his mercy. Be honest. Maybe the proverb is asking, be honest about yourself. The hurts and the insecurities that you carry inside, verses 10 and 13, they hurt. Those slights you hold on to that others said about you, whether it was your second grade teacher or your employer or your spouse. But we can't let those hurts and slights define us. Hold on to the definition God has given you. You're a creature with infinite dignity and your dysfunctions don't take that away.
So challenge your idols. First, you have to admit you have them. And often it's not the idol itself that's the problem. It's the hope and the prominence you place in them for safety and security. God's good gifts, and they are good gifts, are often turned upside down when we suppose they are our source of security and significance. Scripture doesn't say money or work or leisure are bad. But when they replace God, they lead to disaster. The fool trust, verses 11 and 12, trust in the things of their own hands with eternal consequences. The fool does look at money, at uh, work, at leisure, as if it were ultimate. But when a God thing, small g, is the ultimate good thing, there's trouble. So money is, can, be, have, can have great value. Jobs have great value. Savings have great value. But wisdom, God's wisdom is priceless. A good thing that becomes a God thing is a most dangerous thing. A wise person trusts in that which is worthy of trust. The justice and the mercy of God. And so I conclude, as where you suspect I might, the foolishness of the gospel is most clearly seen in that little child in a manger. It may seem foolish that the second person of the God had left his home, his heavenly home, giving up all the glory of being God and entering into the broken world as an infinite in weakness and humility. It's not how we think of the way of success, is it? Advent reminds us how strange this good news is. We're here to confess this strange good news, what we might call this foolish wisdom. That little child in the manger is also the Lord of the universe. And as he left his heavenly home for us, so our reflection of him takes us out of our comfort zone for the well-being of others. One little parenthetical note here. If you're here and you've got grave doubts about this Jesus stuff, we are really thrilled that you're here. And if we're honest with ourselves, we also wrestle with some of those very same doubts. That Christians aren't very Christ-like. That they can be arrogant and selfish and exclusionary. Maybe conversations you've had with neighbors. But the word we want to say is to be careful of your own self-confidence. So there is a danger. There is a danger in saying, Lord, I think I go to church and I'm really moral. But also great danger in saying the opposite. Thank you, Lord. I don't go to church and I'm not self-righteous. Let me suggest that Christ is the answer to the doubts on both ends. Not your perceptions of Christians or yourself even. It's Jesus who speaks against both those who use religion to hurt others and those who suppose they have no need of salvation. 
I want you, I want all of us, this Advent season, ponder how strange the gospel is and how wonderful it is at the same time. So who would think of the God of the universe would take on human flesh? But because of that, our humanity can be redeemed. Who would think the God of the universe would come as a child? Because of that, our own childlike faith is sufficient. Who would think that the author of life would enter into our lives in time and space? But because of that, we can be assured that life doesn't end at the grave. A closing prayer that we would take a deep dive into the strange and beautiful wisdom of Jesus this Advent season. That that little child in the manger might be a teacher of wisdom who comes in humility, obscurity, but with courage. Let me pray.